North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury. North Korea says they've successfully tested a hydrogen bomb. The fact is this is a game changer. President Trump initially responded to the news uh, via a series of tweets. Is this all about testing Trump or the president to get control of not only his own tweeting habits, but also what his cabinet secretaries are saying? Kim Jong-un, I respect the fact that I believe he is starting to respect us. I respect that fact. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. So, Heather, over the weekend, North Korea tested its sixth nuclear bomb. They claim it was a hydrogen bomb. It seems to be correct. The brutal and secretive regime of Kim Jong-un, the 33-year-old supreme leader of North Korea, has threatened to bomb the United States and its territories. As part of his response, our president tweets, well, that South Korea has engaged in appeasement. He tweets that China should cut off all economic ties to North Korea. We are in the thick now of a thing many people feared for the months of this presidency, a full-fledged foreign engagement with maybe disastrous consequences. So this is one of the president's first major tests from outside this country. What grade would you give him on it? Well, certainly I'd give him an incomplete, but he's angling toward an F. Almost everything he does seems to exacerbate a situation, criticizing directly a leader like Kim Jong-un, boxing him in in a way that Kim has no way to save face by doing anything except acting aggressively. This is why you're careful about what you say, not making it a you versus me, mano a mano, we're making this personal. That's a battle of narcissists and actually something that sometimes dictators do when they don't live inside of liberal ideals and democracies. At this point, it's escalated and Trump is left, I think, with fewer and fewer potential paths that could ease, redirect, and reframe what is moving toward, well, a situation where people are losing sleep all around the world with real consequences. So what grade, I mean, well, you have students every day. You're a professor. What I'm, grade, back, I'm back teaching. What grade would you give him, professor? Well, I would go from exactly what you've said is that this is a question of mano a mano, and it's Deeply troubling because it's the kind of dominance politics, the kind of idea that as long as you are the as you bully everybody else into doing what you want them to do, that you're going to win. But that might be possible in a family held business. It's not possible when you have a global audience. And I, I keep coming back to the idea that that. President Trump is not a politician. He's a salesman for the Trump brand. And this worked if you were trying to prove that you were the biggest bully on the playground. But there's a reason that we have had uh, very complicated and, and intelligent diplomacy since World War II precisely to prevent something like this from happening. And the idea that we have gutted that and turned this into a question of two men sort of shouting at each other, especially over Twitter – and in, in press releases is a really a frightening state of affairs for an awful lot of us. Yeah, you know, so let's, let's bring on our guest this week, Sheila Smith, Senior Fellow at the Council 
on foreign relations. She's an expert in Asian politics. Uh, Sheila, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sheila, bring us up to date on the back and forth between North Korea and the Trump administration. Lay it out for us. Well, you know, you'd have to sort of figure out where to start first. (laughs) Let me start in the spring. We're only only, only nine months in. so (laughs) I know, but it feels like eternity. Um, (laughs) On the North Korean crisis, of course, it's been a daily kind of back and forth and back and forth. But, But let's start at the beginning. I think the missile launches that we keep seeing over and over and over again, there was an accelerated uh, testing program that began in January of 2016. This year alone in 2017, there's been there's been 20 missiles now. We are in a, a moment close to a threshold. People identified this last year. The threshold is Kim Jong-un would have a, a long-range missile capable of reaching the homeland of the United States with the weapons of mass destruction. President Trump came in in January. I think all of us here in Washington, D.C., in the think tank world, were quite aware that no matter who was elected last November, one of their first diplomatic crises or strategic crises would be with North Korea. The North Koreans have a habit of testing our new presidents, and Barack Obama was tested, George Bush was tested, and Bill Clinton, of course, was there when when the North Koreans walked away from their commitment to not pursue a a nuclear arsenal. Back in in 1994. Yeah, 93, 94 is when Bill Clinton had to face that decision-making. And again, just to put a little marker out there, it was the Clinton administration that first had to consider whether or not there was a preemptive option, whether or not we would, could, or should think about using military force to forestall the place that we're in today. And, and of course, the decision-making at that time was no, it was not the right answer. Uh, so let me ask you, watching this, having studied this for some decades, what is the array of reactions you're having mm. to Trump's actions, especially in the past two months? Well, you know, there's the rhetoric. And again, you, you and Heather both brought this up at the beginning. It's not... We're kind of used to Kim Jong-un and even his father before him, Kim Jong-il, using rhetoric like fiery responses and turning Tokyo into a sea of fire. And There's a lot of rhetoric that comes out of Pyongyang. I think they're pulling a lot of them from Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they took the North Korean language into Game of Thrones or the other way around? The dragons will come. <laughs> exactly. So Your, so, <laughs> your citizens will burn. <laughs> And there's that lovely lady whose name I can't remember when we all watch TV and we see the North Korean broadcaster, right? She's lovely and in pink. She was in pink because of the thermonuclear detonation. She was very happy about it, but she's a fearsome woman. Right, and I mean, she has you, a you, fearsome voice. But thing is, what do you wear to a detonation? That's one question, and it well, has come up. She wore pink to celebrate this one. It was very funny. <laughs> she looked very feminine and very happy. She'll tell you. know, you were you were just really adept and elegant here in trying to lay this out. So let's do something here. So, uh, so I will I will now say this is sad and pathetic. And help me, Sheila, be my advisor. <laughs> what would you advise me now? Okay, we have five minutes. Oh, okay, two minutes. Uh, Thirty seconds. My Stop whole briefing. Tweeting. I can only take thirty-second briefs. If you mention my name, you get an f- extra fifteen seconds. So give me thirty seconds. All right, President what, Trump. What should I do? Help me. What should I do? So first of all, you should stop tweeting. Stop tweeting. Uh, second of all, you have a very competent spokesperson in Secretary of Defense Mattis, and you have a very responsible military. You have very good generals. I should rely on Mattis, but that's not me. They are they are measured and they understand the situation. I said the other thing is you have a very good friend in Shinzo Abe, Japan's prime minister. And you could possibly have a good friend in President Moon in South Korea if you just give him a little chance. 
but your allies are your best, best asset so, okay, in the region. Okay, so, so, so the minute that Trump suggests to you, now you're on the National Security Council, suggests that he's going <laughs> to whack the South Koreans. Yeah. What, what is your response to that? Then I, I mean, start to tweet. <laughs> you, start to, you then start to tweet. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I thought actually the, the idea that you're in the mid of this, middle of this massive crisis with North Korea and you're going to, A, publicly accuse your ally, President Moon Jae-in in South Korea, of appeasement is wacky, first of all. I'm sorry. But the second is that you're going to try to use the moment to renegotiate the chorus, the Korea-U.S. trade agreement that, by the way, benefits the United States and creates jobs and and profits, right? Um, That you're going to do this in the middle of a nuclear crisis seems to me slightly odd. But Congress responded well. And here's the the silver lining here is that we're all very focused on the president because he's very colorful and the language is very rattling and and things like that. But our U.S. Congress stepped up very quickly to respond on the chorus, uh, the, the idea that the United States would walk out of chorus. And I think that's the thing that I am watching with some interest, right? And it's not just on the trade side, it's also on these on the strategic side, is our Congress is finally taking the responsible role of assuming their prerogative on our foreign policy. And I, I think there's an interesting story there. How much has the North Korean regime changed between the, the rule of Kim Jong-il and now his son, Kim Jong-un? I think you have a fundamentally different leader in North Korea today. You still have the same structure of the regime. So it's not as if the the ideology, the Juche ideology, the self-reliant ideology of the Kim family, the Kim dynasty, right? Starting with Kim Il-sung, the grandfather, to Kim Jong-il, and now to Kim Jong-un. That hasn't changed. Um, the structure how many, of how many control. Years in total, how many years in total does this dynasty run? When does so it this start? So this begins at the end of World War II. Actually, it begins three years before the end. Well, the end of World War II is 1945. The DPRK and the ROK were formally created in 1948, so three years after. And Kim Il-sung, the current leader, the current Kim's grandfather, was the first leader of North Korea. Almost 70 years. Yeah. So this is a long time. But the the transition from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un, you know, as it pertains to this nuclear problem and our attempt to negotiate it, I think has been pretty significant. You know, President Obama also didn't believe that the time was right when he came in to to talk to North Korea. There were were some overtures. When Kim Jong-un assumed power, this young 30-something, the Obama administration attempted to reach out, but it didn't last long and Kim Jong-un really didn't bite. The, the question now, though, there's there's several pieces of his domestic regime that I think are different. And I think one of the pieces, of course, is he has summarily executed his family members. Uh, we just saw him publicly, right, in Malaysia, arrange the assassination of his half-brother. Uh, he killed his uncle very shortly after taking power. He's executed, I think, somewhere of 140 or so of his senior members of his government have been executed so far. Uh, and and he is a pretty brutal guy. Um, again, it's a repressive regime, but he seems to have a particular penchant for violence. So, Sheila, Heather, stand by. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back.
And we're back. I feel like I want to hear the voice of Bill Clinton. And we do hear it right now that in 1994, he announces a deal, the deal, with North Korea, as you, you set up just a moment ago, Sheila. Let's listen. This afternoon, we have received formal confirmation from North Korea that it will freeze the major elements of its nuclear program while a new round of talks between our nations proceeds. North Korea has assured us that while we go forward with these talks, it will not reload its 5-megawatt reactor with new fuel or reprocess spent fuel. And here's President George W. Bush in his 2002 State of the Union, placing North Korea in his famous axis of evil alongside Iran and Iraq. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. In any of these cases, the price of indifference would be catastrophic. You know, it's interesting because when you look at the history of Clinton uh, to Bush to Obama, it's almost like you see a back and forth of piracy. Okay, I've uh, broken the rules. I've thrown overboard the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty back in 1993-94. Clinton engages and says, all right, if you stick to the rules, get back on board, we will pay you. And that ends up being about a $4 billion package that ends up falling into the laps of the North Koreans. That lasts for a while in this kind of, you know, how much is it worth for you to take my weapon away? Uh, and then we have the, the George W. Bush administration. He starts with those angry words, axis of evil. He finds out, yep, they have, are in violation again. Uh, he doesn't go down exactly the same path. He's about a one-tenth payout to Clinton. About $400 million go to the regime then. Again, a smaller payment uh, after, I suppose, the big first back and forth of infraction and payout. And then with Obama, he, he backs away from that. He says, right. look, we're going to have the six-party, you know, the countries of the region will get together. We're going to do a lot of sanctions. Uh, we think sanctions will work. You're going to have to earn your way out of them. And that doesn't work either. And I suppose if you see the back and forth here, is it a case of Kim Jong-un saying, all right, well, I'm going to build up some things that are really going to have value on the piracy market? How much will you pay me now to uh, give you over some of these weapons that actually present existential threat? Is that what's happening here? So I think. I mean, I think the regime in the north has often been characterized as more gangster-like, clandestine, you know, money laundering, uh, printing currencies, uh, all kinds of illicit activities with missile yeah. components and arms and things like that. I think for a long time, especially after our nine eleven, when we were focused very much on the counterterrorism uh, activities around the globe. We were afraid that they were going to sell their fissile material, right? Oh, that that sure. was going to be on the market. Because again, today we're we're talking in terms of North Korea's state and their capabilities. But remember, back in the early two thousands, when we found the clandestine uranium enrichment program in two thousand two, right? We were very very worried. 
that they would be proliferating fissile material and dirty bombs would be our threat. Right. There were connections to A.Q. Right. Khan, the right. Pakistani nuclear right. scientist uh, who had gone to North Korea. Exactly. So there were ties to Iran. There were ties to Iraq. There's a transition here, and again, back to what was different between Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un is not just the father-son where different temperaments or slightly different indicators of what they thought they were willing to bargain. I think Kim Jong-un has really not seemed to signal he's willing to bargain with anybody. And I think what's also interesting when you get Kim Jong-un in office, 2012, um, is the relationship with China has also gone sour. Mm -hmm. And China had always had a pipe right? The whole six-party talk framework, which is the framework during the Bush administration, when the Bush administration shifts gears and says, okay, let's engage. It was the most comprehensive attempt at a regional dialogue with North Korea, basically saying, we will give you security assurances at the and at the end of the day, a peace treaty, if we can get to that point. So that was an attempt to build regional stability. It was led largely by the Chinese, right? The Chinese hosted that in Beijing. And so I think you had the moment there where it looked like some kind of comprehensive settlement might at the end of the day be possible. But once you get into Kim Jong-un, you don't get, none of our uh, folks really get the sense that you're getting from Pyongyang an appetite for any kind of dialogue. Heather, you know, as a historian, you have seen and studied um, the many, many decades of back and forth between the United States and, and many foreign nations that have been of threat. What strikes you here as you look across even our lifetime of back and forth? Well, the central question always seems to me of how you bring a rogue state or a compromised state into communication with the rest of the world. And I, you know, there are many ways to think about that and about who drives those kind of conversations. Is it people at the bottom? Is it the leadership? But, you know, one of my favorite stories about this and one that I think is really illuminating is when Vice President at the time, Nixon, in 1959, met with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev in what became known as the Kitchen Debates, which were a part of a cultural exchange in which an American house was exhibited in Moscow. And it's a fascinating set of talks in which you can actually find online because Khrushchev is trying to debate philosophies and how important communism is. And Nixon is literally saying stuff like, Here's a refrigerator. It <laughs> saves lots of time. Now, that's not a direct quote, but he's every time Khrushchev says, look at the principles that we're living under so that we can keep our state strong and take over the world, Nixon's like, wouldn't you like to spend less time in the kitchen? And it was a really interesting sort of material discussion about the ideologies of different political systems. But at the bottom line, lots of people looked at that and said, yeah, I want a toaster. I want a refrigerator. Maybe maybe communism isn't all so great. Maybe capitalism isn't. And when you think about North Korea, you know, one of the things that seems to me that makes the regime stand as firmly as it does is that its people don't have the kind of access to outside information as they might otherwise, and that maybe the answer is that kind of soft power that is harder and harder to keep away from people nowadays saying, hey, here's a toaster, here's a refrigerator, wouldn't you like these? So Sheila, would that kind of strategy work with North Korea to make sure they have access to more Western ideas about how their economy or their lives could improve, how they could get a toaster or refrigerator as well? So remember that the context of negotiations with North Korea is not just us. The Chinese have largely taken that approach with North Korea, and they've begun with Kim Jong-il, 
the current Kim's father. And they basically reached out to say, and and remember that China and uh, North Korea also have a formal alliance that goes all the way back to the Korean War. So very Mm. close. It's one of China's only allies, formal treaty allies. But China's role here, China did try the let's work on an economic opening up, right? Um, And let's show them that just like we did, you can have market reforms, you can still be a good socialist state or believe in the ideology of Juche with self-reliance, which is the Kim doctrine, right? Um, But you can open it up a little bit. You can have some market activity. There's a new book out that I've just ordered from Amazon that looks at the North Korean economy and and basically makes the case that 70 to 80 percent of the North Korean economy today could be described as as a market economy. So the Chinese role here has been very important in that economic overture, right? Has the, but has China handed that over without demanding enough is the so question. So there, there's the question. We, 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 you know, those of us sitting in Washington want China to use economic leverage now to sanction the North Korean behavior. But and China's why, been very And why resistant. are they so resistant? That's something people ask again and again at this moment. So I have years and years of meeting, uh, you know, informally with Chinese academics and Chinese government officials. And a, a, there's a fairly steady refrain. Um, that we really don't have that much influence over Pyongyang. That's one. And second, I think the Chinese do have a different strategic read of their interests. They see the division of North-South as not necessarily a bad thing for Chinese security. And they see the North as a buffer against a South Korea that has American troops and, and weapons on the ground and a unified Korea with American troops on the ground might not be there in their best interest. So strategically, over the long game, China may not be as uncomfortable with um, mm. some of the events that we've been witnessing. Uh, the voice of realpolitik. Yes, it is. But they want to make sure that uh, this doesn't get out of hand. And both Moscow and, Be- and Beijing have signed on to a UN Security Council sanctions after that missile test flew into Japanese airspace, they they signed on to sanctions that said that they would boycott or they would put an embargo on trade. And the Chinese have not been in, interested in doing that up till now because, you know, like every, you know, again, I'm you know, Heather should jump in here as the historian, but every major war has not always started because people want to go to war with each other. No. It's often started exactly the way we are sitting here experiencing this interaction today, which is rhetorical escalation, militaries getting mobilized, military power being demonstrated, and no real key of how to get a hold of the process or how to stop the dynamic. So I think they're worried, and I think they should be. I think our allies are worried. I think people here in D.C. are worried. I, I want to go back to something that you just said about how wars start inadvertently, and I think I think you can almost argue that every war starts yeah. inadvertently with a lot of posturing and then somebody makes the wrong move. Somebody pulls the trigger at the wrong moment or makes the wrong speech or trips in the wrong place. And one of the things that fascinates me about this whole sort of an issue is when we think about coming to the brink of nuclear war, everybody looks at the Cuban Missile Crisis, right. of course, of October of 1962. But the the one that, that is of more interest to me happened in 1979. Every time we talk about that, you know, what would you do if you got the 3 a.m. phone call? That actually referred to a phone call that actually came on November 9th, 1979. 
when technicians at NORAD in Colorado believed from their computer readouts that, in fact, the Russians had, or the USSR, had launched a full nuclear strike on America. And when that happened, they called the national security advisors, a big new Brzezinski who worked for President Jimmy Carter at the time, and he realized he had to relay that information to the president, and the president would have three to seven minutes to yeah. respond. But it was too late that the world was going to end. And he had to make the call of what he was going to do. And as he was thinking about calling President Carter and saying, this is it, it's over, uh, he got another phone call saying that the, the readings had been wrong, that in fact there had not been a full nuclear launch. But what I find most poignant about that moment is that while he was sitting there at 3 o'clock in the morning thinking the world was going to end, he didn't wake up his wife. He wanted her to die in her sleep. <laughs> and when you come down to all of these yep. nuclear events, Cuban Missile Crisis, this, there was another one as well. But anytime we talk about this, the bottom line is that humans want to walk away from that brink, right. that they might pound their chests and, and insist that they're going to do the unthinkable, but that most human beings would not wake up their wives. They would not want this to happen to the people that they love. And I keep hoping that for all the fact we seem to be tripping toward disaster, that at the end of the day, we want to take care of the people on the bed next to us. You know, and, and I think that flows right to, to something fundamental that is maybe saving us. You know, Sheila talks about mutually assured destruction. We also can see that there has not been the uh, horrifying explosion since, well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, and, and, and right now here, 70 years hence, they're on people's minds. Sheila, let's talk a little about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Sure. You know, it is now fallen out of living memory. But still, not in Japan. it's enough. Not in Japan. Mm -mm. We can hear the echo around the world, but in Japan, absolutely not. Mm -mm. Uh, what's it feel like in Japan now, especially with this missile flying over its airspace? And the detonation of a thermonuclear weapon. Um, I, I think that, you know, we saw this when President Obama went to Hiroshima. The depth of sentiment about what happened um, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki it's very hard to describe in Japan, but many Japanese didn't know until much later what the extent of the damage was and, and how much of those two cities had been devastated. But years later now, um, the scientific evidence is in. The people who survived the atomic bombing, uh, the victims, many of whom died within years over the decades of radiation sickness, some of them are still suffering from the consequences of that to, today, and some of their children have uh, inherited defects and other kinds of physical ailments that are associated with the radiation exposure. President Obama went. He met some of the survivors, the hibaksha, as the Japanese are referred to. And there's a very poignant moment when the president was there in which one of the hibaksha, which you were sitting in the front row, stood up and the president gave him a hug. And that was, you know, that was the photograph, I think, that went around the world. 71 years ago, on a bright cloudless morning, death fell from the sky and the world was changed. A flash of light and a wall of fire destroyed a city and 
demonstrated that mankind possessed the means to destroy itself. For the Japanese people at the time, there was 90, 96 or 97 percent of the Japanese people were grateful that the United States had acknowledged that this is what they had done. And it wasn't a Democrat-Republican thing. It was just really something that the Japanese people had felt had long been ignored. A human thing. Yeah, in the U.S.-Japan relationship. Well, and this is maybe a good moment to remember that when the co-pilot of the Enola Gay, which was the plane that carried the bomb to Hiroshima, saw the explosion behind him and felt the shock wave, he wrote down in the plane, my God, what have we done? You know, there were two peoples during that time and what the horrors that they faced who have said never forget. There are the Jews, <laughs> I'm one of them, and they're the Japanese. Uh, please don't forget, hear our testimony. Um, I worry as we move beyond the living memory that we may forget these lessons of history and of what human beings have the capacity to do to one another. I mean, how do we manage <laughs> to keep the, the suffering, the pain of this memory uh, alive as a way to keep us centered on on not stepping into inhumanity? I watch Syria and the Assad's use of chemical weapons. I mentioned the assassination of Kim Jong-un's half-brother, right, which is done with a nerve gas that was, has been internationally banned. I think we have now crossed some little, some subtle but not so subtle thresholds of the use of weapons that we had globally agreed, right, were inhumane and should never be used again. Sheila Smith from the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, you've laid out um, uh, great insights for us. Thank you so much for thank joining you. us. And thank you, Heather. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Heather, always a joy. As always, nice to chat, Ron. Thank you so much. I'm Ron Suskind. For both of us, this is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.